When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Jack Farley. It is Wednesday, June 30th. I'm joined by Real Vision's Samuel Burke and Jared Dillian, publisher of the Daily Dirt Nap. Today was the third day in a row where U.S. Treasury yields fell with the 10-year below 1.44. Does that mean that the market is getting less worried about inflation? Samuel. Well, Jack, you know we've been talking about the Delta variant for the past couple of days here on the Daily Briefing. Now we're starting to see some of that spill over into the United States, local governments in some places, urging people to mask up. I'm curious to get Jared's take on how or even whether he's factoring that into his bigger picture view of the markets, Jack. And new numbers uh, show that private employment in the U.S., is recovering faster than expected, particularly in the recovering leisure and hospitality sector. I know we'll be talking about labor inflation later, Samuel. And I want to flip from inflation to possible deflationary wins. You know we talked about that earlier in the week with our guest, Darius Dale. Well, lumber was one of the signs that he pointed to when it came to deflation. And lumber continues to go down, Jack, for the month, down 40%. So inflation and deflation right here on the Daily Briefing. Yeah. So uh, now I want to welcome our guest, Jared Dillian. So Jared, the last time uh, we spoke, I believe, you were about to head out for vacation and things were really looking very, very good for the inflation trade. ExxonMobil was at $65. Tesla was on its back foot. Uh, suddenly, you know, you go on vacation and the old saying of, oh, you go on vacation and then everything goes wrong. You go on vacation to Greece and suddenly there's the FOMC dot plot uh, and uh, oil and energy and the banks are getting smacked around. And ARK is now above, ARKK is now above $130. So what happened when you went to Greece? Well, what happened is we had the FOMC meeting, like you said, and uh, they moved the dots up. I mean, look, like I, I was, a, I'm not surprised that we move forward expectations of a rate hike. And I think we talked about this at some point, but all the Fed speakers that were coming out, they were talking about tapering. They were talking about, you know, Kaplan in particular uh, in Dallas. So if you were listening to the Fed, you know, what they did didn't come as a surprise. What surprised me was that everybody was surprised. That's what surprised me. And it had that big of an impact on the markets, especially the bond market. Um, you had this, you know, atrocious flattening of the yield curve. And by the way, I don't know if you've seen a chart of twos, tens, but that was an indication to me that the steepening trade was very, very crowded, um, which I sort of didn't realize. Um, but the flattening yield curve is the biggest threat to the inflation trade. Now, I was on Twitter today, and there's a guy named Will Slaughter. He's at Milwaukee Bonds. And He's got like 7,000 followers. He needs to have more followers. He's a very smart guy. He's a bond market guy. And what he was talking about was um, 
times in history in which the yield curve inverted. Okay, so back in 2007, it inverted with tens at four and a half percent. Back in 2017, it inverted with tens at three percent. He thinks that the yield curve is going to invert with tens of one and a half percent. And in order for that to happen, short-term rates need to come up a lot. So and we have a payroll number, I believe, on Friday. And there's all kinds of danger around this payroll number. You know, you would think that a strong payroll number, like if we got a million jobs on Friday, like that would be good for the inflation trade. But what that's going to do is it's going to bring rate hike expectations even more forward. Two-year yields are going to go up. The, the curve is going to flatten even more, and you'll get more of this deflation trade. So, you know, before I left for Greece, I put on a hedge. I bought some S&P puts. It was a terrible hedge because the S&P didn't really go down, but my inflation trade went down. And that brings up sort of a, a larger idea that the stock market right now, there's a lot of dispersion. Okay, so it's a great stock picking environment. You have stocks going all different directions. Sometimes you have periods of correlation where stocks are moving together. And sometimes, like now, you have periods of dispersion. And I had a hedge on, and it was a completely useless hedge. So if you're thinking about hedging against this sort of thing, you can't, you can't just buy index puts, S&P, NASDAQ, Dow. You have to tailor the hedge to your individual portfolio. Jared, you mentioned dispersion. Uh, that makes me think of a, a tweet from Sentiment Trader who noted something a lot of technicians are seeing in the market, which is that the S&P 500 continues to make all-time highs, and yet the percentage of stocks within the S&P 500 that are trading above their 50-day moving averages is actually below 50%, so less than half. Is that what you meant by dispersion, and what does that mean to you? What does it signal? Uh, it's, not, it's not really what I meant by dispersion. Um... I mean, that's, that's really an indication of breadth. Breadth and dispersion are, are two different things. But, the, you know, but those numbers on breadth are, I mean, that's, you know, that's historically been a very good indication. You know, the sentiment trader guys, Jason, like, you know, they have all kinds of great technical data, sentiment data on, on the stock market. And for the past year and a half, it, it hasn't been very useful. You know, I mean, they've had a bunch of indicators all the way up, and I think they're kind of frustrated. And and I, you know, they threw this out, and they're like, you know, this always works, but maybe not this time because this is a different market. And you know, one of the things I've said is that you know, this I, the bull market will end when the Fed withdraws liquidity, and they haven't withdrawn liquidity yet. All they've done is talk. Okay, that's all they've done. It's just jawboning, but they haven't tapered asset purchases. They haven't hiked rates. You know, I think when they do start to taper, I, I think that's when you see some flattening in the yield curve, and that's when the market starts to run into trouble. Jared, I wanted to circle back to bonds for a bit and, and the bigger talk about inflation, because you actually had a quite profound newsletter that you put out this morning, really talking about how so much of what we see, even in financial markets, is through a political lens, particularly in the United States. And you said one thing that stood out to me in the newsletter, Twitter liberals out there who are tweeting that interest rates going down must mean that there is no inflation. I wonder if you can just expand on that. We don't want to get into the whole Democrat-Republican thing. There are plenty of cable news outlets where people can have those conversations. But you're really talking about how this affects people's framing of the market. And you put out a chart that I was trying to decipher and make sense of. So talk a little bit about what you said in the newsletter. And maybe we can go over that chart, because I'm, I'm rather intrigued. 
Yeah. So, you know, people argue about finance all day on Twitter. Okay. But at, at its core, all these financial arguments are political arguments because conservative people believe all the same things and, and liberals believe all the same things. I have the chart up in front of me. So liberals generally buy growth stocks and conservatives buy value stocks. Liberals believe in deflation and conservatives believe in inflation. Liberals think interest rates are going down and conservatives think interest rates are going up. There's, there's this schooling effect where people sort of all believe the same things. So one of the things that I was noticing, I mean, we've had this retracement in rates of about 40 basis points, you know, and people on the left side of the political spectrum, which I don't want to name names and get into trouble or anything, but they don't believe that we are in an inflationary environment, you know, the 5% CPI notwithstanding. And they think that rates backing up 40 basis points is an indication of deflation. I actually don't think so. And naturally, one of the reasons I don't think so is because I'm on the other side of the political spectrum. I think we have inflation. I think it's really more of an indication of flows and positioning, especially out of Asia, this move that we've had in rates, I think that explains most of it. So I don't think that, you know, 10's going from 1.8 to 1.4 doesn't mean that this inflationary impulse suddenly goes away. And why do you think that the liberal mindset or the conservative mindset would respectively go toward deflation or inflation? I hadn't perceived that in the markets at all, that more liberals were, were seeing deflation and, and conservatives infl inflation. So what do you think is that mindset? Uh, I think I'm going to I'm going to try to deconstruct this a little bit. I mean, I'll just talk talk about it from my own standpoint. You know, just I'm not going to, you know, uh, explain anybody else's point of view. Mm -hmm. I think that if you have a belief that we're in an inflationary environment, then you believe in the impotence of the central bank to um, control inflation. OK. And if you're on the other side, if you believe if you believe that the Fed actually has the power to control in inflation. And that really has to do with faith in government institutions. And that's really where the, the political nexus is in, in this trade. So, I mean, there was a bunch of other stuff in the list. There was, you know, ESG and buybacks and dividends and, you know, fiat currencies versus Bitcoin and gold. But, you know, if you look at the people who argue on Twitter all the time, they're all, they're all on either side of the fence on all these issues. So every financial argument is also a political argument. We just don't realize it. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Jared, I want to know, why, do you, why is uh, active management you associate with conservatives, whereas indexing and, and low-fee passive investing is something you associate with? with that's, actually, that's a very easy one to explain because... Um, you know, if, if you're liberal, you tend to believe in efficient market theory. You believe that people can't beat the market, okay? And, and, if, and it's, it comes down to market efficiency. And if you're conservative, you generally don't believe in market efficiency. You believe that the market can be beaten. So we did have a period of about 10 years where, you know, people were piling into index funds. Vanguard got $5.5 trillion in assets. And now in the last 6 to 12 months, We've had this period of time where active management is actually 
outperforming. More people are beating the index, and people aren't going into index funds anymore. They have Robinhood accounts, and they're trading. I want to talk about something else that could have a political angle, though I would prefer that it didn't, didn't, and that's the Delta variant. You know, we talked the past couple of days about the effect that it had on the European travel industry. So I'm curious, with something like this, there are a lot of people in the Real Vision audience who see the alarmist headlines in the media. Certainly, we know that media does very well. When you're getting people to click, you're getting people to watch, and certainly coronavirus is something that draws them in. But when you actually see governments start to change policies as a result of the Delta variant, the way we've seen in Europe, now some small, I don't want to overstep, overspeak what's going on in the U.S., but you see L.A. putting in, encouraging people to use masks again. I'm curious, how do you factor that in to your view of the market then, Jared? Well, I think a good analog here is uh, terrorism back in the 2000s. So, you know, 9-11 had an enormous impact on the market. The stock market was down about 20%. And then there were smaller terrorist attacks in the 2000s after that. There was the one in Spain. There was the one in London. And after each terrorist attack, the market impact got smaller and smaller. And now we don't really think about terrorism today. So, you know, if the Delta variant were to have an impact, it would be smaller than the original impact. And successively, over time, this is this is just going to recede from our consciousness. And I'm not I'm not at this point. It's very hard to position for something like this. Like if if you thought that uh, the Delta variant was a factor and you wanted the short stocks, I mean, that could be a very painful trade because this sort of thing doesn't really matter until it matters. Like everybody knows the Delta variant is out there, but at some point, if, if it does matter, we'll reach a tipping point and it will be in the public consciousness, and then it will matter to the markets. But until then, nobody cares. And for me, it's not really a factor. You can't really predict these things. You can only react to them. Yeah. The, um, Jared, what you said makes me think about that. what it really hinges on is, can fully vaccinated people be affected by this? Not what can one or two, but can a a substantial percentage of them can, because the narrative that has been out there is if you're fully vaccinated, you can do whatever you want. You can go to concerts, you can go to the beach, you can go to you know indoor events uh, like you and I did when we went to your your party uh, last Friday, which was incredible. But uh, you know you, your your freedom is not restricted at all. This is the first time, at least in the U.S. for a while, um, that. What we what we seen in LA was that they they said, hey, even if you are fully vaccinated, we still recommend that you wear masks. That is, I guess, a a shift that, if not a uh, you know a real physical shift, that is at least a, a tonal one. Yeah, I think it comes down to deaths and hospitalizations. I mean, you know, if you if you get sick with the Delta variant, but it's uh, it's mild and there really aren't any consequences, then you know theoretically there wouldn't be any reason to change policy on that. Uh, but when you start talking about people being hospitalized or people dying from it while they're vaccinated, then yes, that would have an enormous impact. I actually, I haven't studied it a lot, so I, I can't really speak to that, but that should be the criteria. Well, I was just mentioning, I'll just say it again, you know, we have the Delta variant spreading where I am, but hospitalizations, death, very, very low. So hopefully those are lagging indicators that stay just the way that they are. Jared, I want to ask you, let's go back to bonds. Are you viewing bonds as a potential hedge to your value investments, which are very uh, 
you know, negatively correlated with with rates? I've thought about it. Uh, I think it's I think it's a little bit too late. I, that's the problem. Um, you know, and if uh, if 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 the back end rallies even more, I don't I don't think it's going to rally more than ten or twenty basis points. So to initiate a hedge here, uh, you know, to hedge the inflation portfolio with a long bond position, I think it's just too late. And I'll just chop myself to bits. And it's I, I think it's a bad idea. All right, we have a question from Tom. Uh, says, Jared, do you see any signs of market exhaustion? And how would you protect yourself in a correction? Uh, I guess the only sign of market exhaustion that I can really um, verbalize is, I mean, the chart looks tired. You know, you know when, I, when, I, when I look at the chart of the S&P 500, it, it looks very tired. Um, we have very low volatility. We're moving 20, 30 basis points a day. The last two days, we've traded in a ten-point range in the S and P. Um, I just kind of, I kind of struggle to come up with a catalyst that would get the S and P another five to ten percent higher. I'm, I'm having a, a tough time thinking of that. Doesn't mean I'm bearish, um, but it, the, the chart looks tired. Yeah, uh, just to that point, uh, the Nasdaq, the Q's down uh, sixteen basis points today, and the S and P. Up 13 basis points, so not a whole lot of movement on the surface. Samuel, yeah. Well, the other topic that I really wanted to get Jared's thoughts on were these new employment numbers that we had out. Private sector jobs uh, actually beat expectations. 692,000 jobs added, with expectations of 600,000, I believe. So we're just getting back inside inflation discussion again. So I'm wondering where you think that fits in when you talk about labor inflation. I think of all the inflation verticals out there, that one seems to be the most potent. So how does that factor into your thinking as you look forward? Well, you know, just anecdotally, you know, here in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, this is, uh, you know, it's basically a hospitality industry here. It's hotels and restaurants. And the labor shortages here were very acute, like it was bad. Um, you know, you go into a restaurant and they'd have uh, one server and one cook, and they could serve a couple of tables, and it was it was a bad situation for a while. The labor shortage seems to be um, have abated. Um, there's, you know, restaurants are full at this point. The hotels are full. I think people have gone back to work. I think that's reflected in the private payroll numbers. So I do think that there, I think that, you know, I'm not really in the game of predicting economic data. And I think even if you knew the economic data in advance, I don't think you can make money off of it. But I do think we're going to have a pretty strong payroll number on Friday. Jared, um, a key input to your thesis about uh, wage inflation was the benefits that unemployed people could get. Does the fact that these benefits are rolling over in many states and in some states have already rolled over, uh, I'm talking about state unemployment insurance, does that uh, make you less confident in your, in your inflationary call, particularly when it comes to labor inflation? Uh, I don't really understand. Can you explain that? Oh, sorry. Well, so I'm just seeing that the there are early end dates for enhanced jobless benefits like Alaska, Ohio, uh, Mississippi, Missouri, um, I believe in, in South uh, South Carolina. Carolina, yeah, um, yeah. Four days ago, as of four days ago, the enhanced job benefits are, are over. Does that do that think that will transfer to a new regime where there's you know less of an incentive for for, for people to to stay home? Yeah, are, for sure. Are I people going to go back to work? 
you know, the states that have done this represent a pretty small percentage of the population, but I think it's kind of a sneak preview of what's going to happen when the benefits ultimately expire. You know, you're going to see the unemployment rate drop pretty dramatically. I mean, we're at 5.8 right now. Uh, we could be at 5.5, 5.6 on Friday. Um, but once these benefits expire, you'll see unemployment go back to the forehandle pretty quickly. I'm surprised to hear you say that, though, given your views on inflation. And if you're if if that's if that happens, then shouldn't that drive keep uh, keep wages from from inflating too too much? No, I don't. Th- I don't think it'll put a cap on wages at all. I, I think that now that rate wages have risen, they're not going to come back down. Wages are very okay. sticky. So you know, people the, the wages that have been set during the pandemic are not going down, and they might go down in in some in some places here and there, but by and large, they're not going down. Jared, I want to ask you about the commodity trade. Commodities have been totally uh, benefited. They've been swept up in in this reflationary wave over the past, let's say, nine months. Um, Lumber, copper, oil, they were all simply exploded higher. But over the past month, month and a half, um, lumber has fallen. Copper has fallen. You've seen that these these uh, commodities have rolled over, and oil is kind of the, the last man standing, with Brent somewhere, I don't know, $74. Do you think that we could see some weakness in, um, to, to follow, or do you think that oil will continue to be the, the last man standing? No, I don't, I don't think so. I don't, I don't think people should really look at lumber as an indicator. I think it's a very poor indicator. Um, what happened to lumber that last run-up was pure speculation. Um, it, it, I really, you know, the, the 40% up, 40% down, I think that's just sort of an anomaly. I think it's speculation. A lot of people are looking at that lumber chart and they're saying, oh, we're having deflation. It's just, it's just a special case. Like, I don't think you can look at number. Um, when I look at charts of the ags, especially corn, the, the, I think it's, they're starting to look pretty good. Um, I, you know, I think they're starting to turn. Uh, oil, like you said, is a special case, and uh, I think the supply-demand dynamics for oil are going to be good for a really long time. So, you know, X lumber. I think uh, I, you know, I'm still bullish on commodities. It hasn't changed my thesis at all. Yeah, I think I saw corn was up something like seven percent today on news yeah. that from the Department of Agriculture that um, something about plantings. Sorry, Samuel, you're going to say something. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. No, no, we've got another question coming in. I don't want to divert from this topic and uh, totally go back to Delta variant, but uh, Larry's asking, uh, you, Jared, don't you think that the Delta variant is one of many stories we will likely see over the next few years, even if forced into another lockdown in the U.S.? Don't you think fiscal and monetary policy will remain unchanged and therefore continue to boost asset prices? Uh, that's a good question. It's a, it's, a, it's a matter of the path that we take to get there. Because, uh, you know, pardon my language, but I don't think the Fed has the balls to do this. I really don't. You know, if they if they were at 120, you think they're so afraid if they change course that they'll spook everybody? Uh, in not so many words, you know, we're at 120 billion a month in asset purchases. If they taper it to 90, they taper it to 60, they taper it to 30. Then the market gags, right? Then stocks are down 10, 15 percent. The VIX goes up to 35, and they'll stop. 
they'll stop because you know this Fed, unlike the Volcker Fed or the Greenspan Fed, I mean they're afraid of the market. So you know I think we'll head down this path of tightening, but ultimately I don't think we're going to go all the way. Jared, I, I think one aspect of the question was that if the Delta variant is really really bad and there are variants. Will fiscal and monetary policy continue to you know be as dominant as they have over the past year? And my answer is perhaps yes. And if so, Jared, my question for you is, what's the playbook? Is it what the same thing that you would have done if you could look back in the in the future? Whereas when when we go into lockdown, you buy Zoom, you buy the fangs, and then we get once you get out of lockdown, you buy Exxon Mobil and you buy the banks. Is that the playbook? How are you thinking about that? Yeah, I mean, I'm not thinking about it. I mean, this is it's all it's all it's all hypothetical. It's all it's all hypothetical. Right. I mean, sure, like if we had a lockdown because of the Delta variant by Zoom, yeah, absolutely. Um, I I I'm just I'm very skeptical. I'm very skeptical. yeah. I think we're we're still a long way away from that. Even in the UK, for instance, uh, we've been talking about they're moving ahead with their July 19th full and final unlocking, even with the the spread of the Delta variant, but. It's a, it's a, a good question. The other thing that I was thinking about when you were saying that, that the uh, Fed doesn't have the cojones, as we might say in Spanish, to do that. I mean, do you think the ECB uh, it has has uh, more cojones to do that? Uh, because if you look, they're, they've indicated that they're not going to taper, that they don't think we're out of the crisis over here. Yeah, I saw some comments from Lagarde. Um, you know, it's... Uh... I, I don't think they have any intention of of uh, tightening monetary policy at all. I mean, I was just in Europe. You know, I was just in Greece, and Greece bond yields just went below zero. You know, um, it's 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 pretty nuts. The, the amazing thing is, is that you know, Europe has become a little bit like Japan. And I think if they did tighten, I actually think it would be beneficial for equity prices, including uh, the banks. And I actually bought the European Bank ETF a couple of weeks ago, and I'm immediately regretting it um, because I, you know, I saw those comments out of Lagarde, and I just don't know what, when they're going to get off of zero. So, Jared, I want to ask you a question, which I saw something in your newsletter, the Daily Dirt Nap today, that really piqued my interest. And it sounded you were proposing a trade that you were going to go in on of actually shorting AMC via calls, so selling naked calls on AMC. Obviously, this has been a widowmaker trade, but you think that you can emerge victorious from this trade. Tell us why. Well, I mean, it, it's uh, it, this is what I call a fun trade. Okay, <laughs> this isn't. It's not a strategic trade. It doesn't really fit into the portfolio, you know. But I'm looking at AMC options. They're 200 vol. Um, you know, the stock is at 55 bucks. You can sell the August calls for like 11 or 12 bucks. I mean, it's. It, <sighs> You know, I'm just you know I sold a three lot. Okay, it's 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 not a consequential trade at all. Um, having said that, you know, AMC like is probably worth zero. And if you look at the fundamentals of the movie business, like they're terrible. I mean, I'm talking about like X pandemic. Okay, just take the pandemic out. People are staying at home. They're watching streaming. Uh, the content that the movie theaters are putting out is terrible. They rely on a couple of big tentpole movies. It's a terrible business, you know. And I actually think five or ten years from now, you'll probably have half as many movie theaters in the U.S. So I don't. I don't even think that AMC is going to survive. Now, my trade is very short term. It's a month. You know, it's just a speculative trade. But you know, I'm pretty comfortable with it. Yeah, it's an interesting trade for sure. And 
Also tell us about you are doubling down on buying puts on MSTR. Of course, that's MicroStrategy, the company that owns a lot of Bitcoin and now is essentially a proxy for Bitcoin. Tell us about that. Um, do you really want to know? Of course. Of course. Of course. Yeah. I don't so, ask questions when I don't want to know the answer. So that's that's also a small trade. That's also a fun trade. Uh, it's um, I bought some December puts at MicroStrategy. It's December. And um, you know, I think Bitcoin's in a bear market. If you look at a chart of Bitcoin, it's perfectly symmetrical. It's it's the biggest head and shoulders top of all time. After the head and shoulders comes the knees and toes. Okay. So I think, you know, I, I mean, I really do believe that Bitcoin's gonna go back down to about ten thousand in the next six months. At a minimum, you know, sailor's average price is twenty-six thousand. He's gonna be tested. You know, the largest leverage player in any market is always tested. So, you know, I'm looking forward to when that happens. And, you know, there's the, the stock could get cut in half very, very quickly if that happens. I'm just curious, what are your what are the fundamentals driving your thinking on Bitcoin then? I get going down to that level. Well, there are no fundamentals in Bitcoin. Well, no fundamentals down. Yeah, your fundamental thinking. I mean, what are the factors that are that are putting it there for you? I mean, is it sentiment? Is it what's pushing you there? Um, it, it's it's really technicals. It, you know, the the chart is broken. It's a bear market. It's down fifty percent. And uh, and actually, if you want to talk about fundamentals, um, you know, for sure, there's going to be a lot of regulation that's coming. And the you know the Bitcoin people are like you know bring it on like you know the regulation is going to be great it's going to be good for Bitcoin I don't necessarily think so I actually saw there was a guy I guess there's a Bitcoin committee in the Senate or the House I, I got I, I just kind of breezed by this tweet so I didn't really see but he's talking about how there should be an ability to reverse transactions on blockchain. I mean, the people, the people in charge of regulating this are totally incompetent. They're going to screw it up, and it's um, it's not going to be it's not going to be good for Bitcoin at all. It, yeah, that reminds me of it reminds me of when Congress was trying to regulate the social media companies, which they're still trying to do. And a senator actually asked Mark Zuckerberg, "How do you make money?" Missing you know the whole yeah. the, all think, the ads on the. I think Mark Zuckerberg said, "A senator, we sell ads." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Um, well, we're going to have to leave it there. Uh, Jared, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Samuel, thank you as well. And thank you to everyone watching. Oh, quickly, Jared. So over the weekend, you DJed a very amazing party that's actually very close to the Real Vision office. Um, I understand that you are putting another party on the docket uh, during the fall. Tell us about that. Yeah, November 12th, Friday, November 12th. It's going to be at the same place. Uh, it, you know, It's a great space, as you know. Uh, and it, I only, I only have good people that I'm friends with. It's, it's lots and lots. There's, there's no, no buttheads there. It's just, a, it's a bunch of nice people. So, um, yeah, that party was awesome. Hopefully we can share some pics the next time. So yeah, definitely. Let, let's do it. Uh, by the way, we have a final question, which, uh, is from Ash Bennington, but my colleague, uh, says not a hundred percent sure, hundred percent sure that this is Ash. Um, but from someone named Ash Bennington, why, Jared, why sell calls on AMC but buy puts on MSDR? Can you unpack why you're open to taking unlimited upside losses on one but not the other? Uh, so, not to get too technical, uh, the AMC calls are more expensive than the micro strategy puts. 
So you want to sell options that are expensive and you buy you want to buy options that are cheap. The microstrategy puts are not cheap, but in terms of implied volatility, they're cheaper than the AMC calls. So that that's kind of the rationale for that. I, and I really I, I don't want to be short calls on Bitcoin. Let's put it that way. So yeah, yeah, that that's a great way to put it. Um, I actually we do have something. Um, we are going to on Friday. There is an interview with a credit default swap trader uh, named David Menoret. Um, I did the interview and I learned a fantastic amount about credit default swaps. Not something you hear about every day. Of course, they were at the epicenter of the 2008 uh, Great Financial Crisis. But uh, David was saying, exploring, you know, what if uh, credit risk is underpriced? And I can get, you know, if cre- the credit default swap market is basically priced as if the VIX were at five or six. So uh, with that, let's let's take a quick look at a clip that is going to be airing on Friday. If I look at credit today, uh, I think. The markets are not pricing any kind of unknown unknowns. Uh, markets are pricing absolute perfection for investment grade bonds, uh, for high yield bonds, for leverage loans, for CLOs, for the entire ecosystem. And there are many attractive ways to take the other side of that bet, to think that maybe something bad will happen, uh, may not be as bad as COVID, we hope not. Uh, but there are many ways to express a view throughout the credit full swap market, which is extremely cheap right now in terms of protection. That airs on Friday on realvision.com on the essential tier. Jared, Samuel, thank you so much for joining us. And thank you to everyone at home who is watching. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.